0: May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all our hearts be acceptable in the sight of the Lord. Amen. Please be seated. My wife, Andrea, had a feisty streak. Sometime before we met each other, the pastor of the church she was attending, not St. John's, preached a sermon in which he exhorted the congregation to prioritize giving to the church above and beyond going out and getting nice things for themselves. Andrea responded by purchasing the red leather couch that still sits in my living room and telling the pastor about her nice new couch. Although temperamentally, I'm not as in your face as Andrea was, I think her instinct was fundamentally healthy. Despite the admonition in this morning's epistle to not use your freedom for self-indulgence. Part of Andrea's calling, you see, a part that had not been blessed very much earlier in her life, and part of the heart that God gave her was to create beauty around herself. And at that point in her life, as the next step in her growth and healing, she needed to step out and own who she truly was even in the face of contrary messages. She needed to experience the freedom in Christ that comes when we follow the Spirit. Over the course of church history, there has been a lot of confusion about what it means that those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Too often, fleshly desires have been equated with such things as, appreciating good food, or enjoying sexual intimacy with your spouse, whereas it could just as well apply to things such as taking pride in fasting or asceticism. All of these things can trip trip us up if they're used wrongly. The key is in that sentence in the middle of today's passage. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not subject to the law. In Galatians, Paul contrasts the freedom that believers have when they are moving in the Spirit with the bondage that comes from trying to achieve righteousness through the law. When we are led by the Spirit, we are intimately connected with God and his life flows in us and through us. When we live by the flesh, we trust in our own capacity apart from God to judge what is good and bad. We may even quote the Bible or try to follow biblical laws or principles, but in the end, we're trying to be in control at the expense of relationship with God. And cut off from the source of life, we wither and die. As it says in Romans, the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. In the long run, when we've been led by the Spirit, the result will be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. In the short term, however, we may experience conflict, pain, grief, or doubt, especially if we're stepping out in a new way. But eventually, the fruits of the Spirit emerge. The imagery of fruit is apt. Fruit doesn't appear on a plant immediately, but develops as the plant matures. While there are some things that clearly come from the flesh, the Paul spells out for us in this passage, things like fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, and so forth. There are many other things that could come either from the flesh or the spirit, depending on how God is leading us at the moment. In the story of Exodus, for example, when the Israelites arrive at the border of Canaan, the Lord tells them to send out scouts to survey the land that he is giving them. Once the scouts return, The people are afraid to enter the promised land. They size up the situation on their own rather than listen to God. They start making plans to go back to Egypt, resulting in God's judgment on their rebellion. Once they see that judgment unfolding, immediately they decide that they'd better go into Canaan after all. Even though God at this point is telling them that his protection is no longer on them. Once again, they are trying to fix things on their own rather than following God. And it does not end well. The same act, at one point God is saying, do this. At another point he is saying, don't do this. Uh, At the core of the wisdom literature, there's that passage from Ecclesiastes. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. We need to be sensitive to the Spirit of God to know which time we're in, because precisely opposite things are demanded at certain times. It is not enough to simply go to a verse in the Bible and say, the Bible says this, because at the wrong time, that could be the wrong thing to do. We see that in the temptation of Christ. Actually, I don't have uh, time to share it today, but I had some fun going through the book of Job and seeing some things that if they were taken out of context, you know, some quotes from the people, Job's friends, who were ostensibly trying to comfort him. But if these things were taken out of context, you'd think, well, that sounds pretty true. That you know, uh, you know God, God doesn't hasn't treated you as your sins deserve. Well, that sounds like God's mercy. Except in the context, it came through the Job as accusation, and Job responded by saying how crushed he felt by what they were saying. You see, it's that difference between peace and life on one hand and death and heaviness on the other hand. And there's no shortcut. There's no magic instructions that we can can always follow. One of the hazards of preparing a sermon, this sermon in particular, is that I always try to leave you with practical applications. Something concrete that you can do to live out the message. But you're not all in the same place. One of you may need to mourn, and another one of you may need to dance. So what to do? I will share, I can't help but share a couple ideas later on. But ultimately, it's not my role to tell you what to do. My role is to say, listen to what the Spirit is telling you. My role is to offer to be a coach, to be a sounding board, Say to help you understand, does that seem right? And and another thing, role is to say, pay attention to the fruit that emerges. Let's look at what some of the other scriptures that we read in our service today have to say about this process of living in the spirit and listening to God. When Elijah is taken up to heaven in the whirlwind, Um, I hadn't realized this before. I was always confused by that double portion of the inheritance, uh, uh, the double portion that uh, that, Elisha is asking for. How can you have twice as much of the spirit? Actually, that's a reference to inheritance law. The double portion of the inheritance is the portion that the oldest son gets. And so what he's really saying is, I want to be known as your true son and heir. This and this bestowing of the spirit on Elisha is something that only God can do. So Elijah is wise enough in the passage to know that that's not something he, in his own flesh, can make happen. And so he, he he says, "It's a hard. It's not something I can do." Is basically what he says. He says, "Here's how you'll know if it happens." And then, as Elijah sins in the world where Elisha calls out, Father, Father. And you can see his grief at losing Elisha. It's not not like, yippee, I've got the mantle. There's a a genuine grief because of the closeness that was between them. Attachment is what opened the door for Elisha to receive the Spirit. They were like family together, the type of attachment that we feel at the core of our being, somebody who is truly a part of us. And one way to to, to move in the Spirit is to cultivate that attachment, both with God and with other believers. So think of the best parent you've ever seen. What did they do with their child? that touched your heart? Was it the way they held their child? The way they paid attention to their child? The way their eyes lit up when they looked at their child? For each one of us, it'll be something a little bit different. But invite God into your life to do that with you, to hold you, to pay attention to you. To have his, light, his eyes light up when he looks at you. And then also ask God if there are other people in the body of Christ with whom you, he wants you to develop family-like relationships. Father, mother, brother, sister, child. As we uh, move on to the psalm, Psalm is a model of integrity. Uh, you'll notice that we read the the, the title for the. If, if you look back at the psalm here, you know, the you know the lectionary actually said that we should read verses one and two and eleven through twenty. Well, we read the whole psalm. I, I asked to and to put put all the verses in there. Um, I understand why the lectionary cut out the verses of doubting and struggle because. When we come together we want to praise together but but let's look at the arc of this psalm together it starts out with the first with saying i will cry aloud to god i will cry aloud and he will hear me so there's a context that we are expecting to be heard by god now we may not experience god hearing us but I think we all can acknowledge that if I'm saying something, God's there and he actually can hear me whether I know it or not. So I I think that we're on pretty safe grounds that he can hear me. And then what follows in the verses that were cut out is a frank description of what the psalmist is struggling with. He He talks about his physical condition, being restless, not able to sleep. And he moves on to the questions that are running through his mind. Will the Lord cast me off forever? Will he show me no more favor? You know, questions, 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 which are the thing which we have when we struggle. And and then he finally, in talking with God, comes to the point that's really bothering him. My grief is this the right hand of the most high has lost its power. It really feels like God's not doing anything and is powerless in this situation. But then this Psalm, as many of the Psalms do, takes a turn. The Psalmist intentionally turns his attention to those times where God has acted. Not minimizing the pain or invalidating the pains and questions and doubt, but holding it in tension with the good that God has done. And recalling that good as vividly as possible, if you look at um, some of the verses near the end of the psalm, it, it, you know, the lightning lit up the world, the earth trembling and shaking. It's quite vivid language, and that helps us to get in touch with with this this other part of the truth that that the psalmist is struggling with. So I think part of what's going on is, is something I recall a counselor saying: if you're talking about someone and it's all good or it's all bad, you're not talking about a real person. We all we, in all of our relationships, there's things that are blessings and things we struggle with. And sometimes when we're feeling down, we forget that there actually is a good side as well. And um, and so what we see happening in the psalm is the psalmist wrestling to become as honest as possible about what's really going on, but trying to hold, on, hold the tension of the fact that he knows that God is good. So one thing we can do to increase our ability to walk in the spirit is to cultivate this type of honesty write a psalm of your own, or just spend time in the psalms. Find one that meets you where you're at. Um, lately, um, realizing that I have an area I was struggling in, I started memorizing a couple psalms that, that touched on that area. And that's really good when, I'm, when, I'm, when I can't string a, a prayer together for anything, I can sit there and, and you know, work on getting those words into my mind. I found, it, I found it surprisingly helpful. Um, as, we, and as we're talking about areas of struggle and bringing them to God, um, one area that I think many of us may be struggling with is the realization that the last couple of years have been draining and we just want life to be good again. We've dipped into our reserves of emotional and spiritual energy to overcome one challenge after another and we're depleted. And even if this doesn't apply to you personally, it applies to enough of the people around us that it affects us all. I believe our congregation is called the healing presence in the midst of this. Um, John Elridge writes in his most recent book, The longing for things to be good again is one of the deepest yearnings of the human heart. It has slumbered in the depths of our souls ever since we lost our true home, for our hearts remember Eden. Most of the time, this beautiful, powerful longing flows like an underground river below the surface of our awareness, so long as we are consoled by some measure of goodness in our lives. While we are enjoying our work, our family, our adventures, or the little pleasures of this world, the longing for things to be good again seems to be placated. But when trials and heartbreaks wash in, the longing rises to the surface like a whale coming up for air, filled with momentum and force. This is especially true after times of severe testing, because during the testing, we are rallied. But when the storm subsides, the longing for things to be good again rises up to demand relief. How we shepherd this longing, so crucial to our identity and to the true life of our heart, how we listen to it, but also guide it in right or wrong directions. This determines our fate. He gives some telling examples of, of a you know, three quarters of all homeowners made improvements to their property during the pandemic. There was sense to try to want to make something better. Round one. Um, and something that I've been thinking about is how after the Spanish flu epidemic in the earliest part of the 1900s, it moved straight into the roaring 20s. A, a sort of a, almost a compulsive partying, trying to forget it, try, failure, denial, of the process. The pain that people have been gone through. Elridge sums up by saying that all these comforts and activities that he engaged in weren't delivering whatever my soul was desperately longing for. I've certainly experienced this. As most of you know, one way that I get recharged is by going out and looking at birds. This is a good gift from God that almost always lifts my spirits. But there are times when I go out and I feel a gnawing emptiness, a realization that in itself, this is not what fills me and gives me life. Red leather couches, birds, fine meals, and home repairs are all good gifts when we receive them as signs of love from a deeper source. But if we try to draw life from these things apart from God, then they become fleshly desires and turn to dust. Our gospel passage challenges us to remember that following Jesus must be the first priority in our lives if we are to live by the Spirit. This widespread longing for life to be normal again, combined with a dissatisfaction because it's really not possible, is creating dangerous conditions in our society. It's so easy for us, along with James and John in our gospel lesson, to want to call down fire on those people, those wrong headed people who see things differently than we do. This is true no matter where we land on the political or socioeconomic spectrums. And Jesus will have none of it. We are unequivocally called to forgive, love, and pray for everyone, especially our enemies, and to go where Jesus leads us. He will, in his way, in his time, lead us to confront injustice, but with none of the vitriol that permeates the society of our time. We are called to bring everything in our lives honestly to Jesus, especially our deepest desires. Here's one sample prayer. Jesus, I come to you in my longing for life to be good again. I love you here in my soul's longings, desires, and heartaches. I surrender to you my ability to aspire for good things, plan for them, take hold of them, Enjoy them and keep on aspiring. I love you, and I ask that the river of your life would flow in me. Come, Lord Jesus. We can pray this with confidence, because it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Amen. Amen.